This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. My guest today is the writer Eche Tumelkarin. She was once described as Turkey's most read political columnist and has published 12 books, including non-fiction, poetry and novels. In 2019, she published How to Lose a Country, Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship. And her new book, Together, 10 Choices for a Better Now, is a kind of response to that book, explaining how we might remain morally and psychologically intact in difficult times. Hi Eche, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Dorian. It's a pleasure to be with you on this podcast. So are you in Zagreb at the moment? Yeah, I am. Although the, the city looks like London since a while. The weather is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we can bond over that. We were on a panel together at the Festival Ideas in Bristol two years ago. And at the end, you were asked the question that, in fact, you mentioned on, on pretty much the first page of the book, you know, something like, you know, where is the hope? What can we be hopeful about? And you were obviously quite tired of answering that question, and you had obviously heard it a lot. Why does that that question, and maybe that word, why did it come to bother you? So I don't remember. Was I nice to the audience when they asked about the hope? I hope you I were, yeah, I mean, like you, yes. I mean, you 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 did challenge the premise of the question. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, like this: how to lose a country? You know, it made me the Cassandra of global politics for two years. Oh my God. I'm like, it has been published in several countries. So I had to go around and tell people that they're in deep shit. So it's not, I wasn't the most favorite person of audiences probably. And like, they tried to love me by asking this question <laughs> at the very end. So where is the hope? Obviously, I kind of convinced them that probably, you know, the situation is quite gloomy. So yeah, the hope. Um, they keep asking this question. Uh, and then I, it made me think for two years and I kind of heard this need for emotional crutch. And what is the answer to that question? I mean, like there can be two answers. No, there's no hope. Uh, oh, yes, there's hope. Would it change the, you know, what they do in real life? Would, they, would, they, would it change the fact that they're not doing anything or they are doing not enough? So, you know, the question started sounding quite ridiculous to me. But then, uh, you know, this old lady uh, in Edinburgh gave me some good life lesson. Uh, you know, I was a little bit sarcastic uh, when they asked about hope again at the end of my talk. So she said to think about that, you know, think about faith. Uh, and I thought, you know, she was talking about Christianity or something because there's this, there was this wooden cross hanging from her neck. Uh, and she said, no, 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 I'm not talking about Christianity or religion. I'm talking about faith in humankind. And then I started thinking about it. And I actually understood that hope is a timid code for 
the loss of people's faith in their own kind. It, it kind of that, you know, that question or that lady changed uh, my perspective on politics, on the masses and their compliancy and everything. Well, you, you do sort of ultimately insist, you know, on, on you know, having some faith in humanity and, and also to sort of forgive humanity, you know, yourself included. It's a very sort of personal, complex book. Um, as you wrote it, it, it doesn't sound as if you basically had like, you, you know, you had all the answers when you started. Were you wrestling with certain sorts of doubts and fears as you wrote it? Dorian, I mean, like, I have to confess something. Now and then I am still wrestling with the idea of faith in humankind. I'm like, unfortunately, humans are presenting me with all the horrible things. So <laughs> there is no day that I don't wrestle with the idea. But I think it's a political and moral stance to have faith in humankind. Why am I talking about this? I mean, you know, faith is a very dangerous word. It has a habit of getting out of hand and it's like, you know, it stands somewhere between poetry and religion. But I do think that what we have been through globally, especially after 1970s, disturbed, damaged our faith in humankind. Uh, and that is one of the fundamental reasons I do think now that We have this kind of politics, we have this kind of system, we have this kind of indignity, too much indignity in the world we're living in. So, you know, I try to talk about politics without the political discourse. And I have to tell you, it's not a piece of cake because you might end up, look, you know, writing a book that looks like a political self-help book, like I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you have readers in countries, you know, like the UK or US that worry about authoritarianism, but then you've also got readers in countries that have already experienced it, like either in their past or, or right now, you know, like, yeah. like Turkey, for example. Do you notice there is a big difference in the kinds of questions these audiences ask between these sort of two kinds of country? Absolutely. There's no mention of, there was no mention of India in How to Lose a Country, for instance. And many Indians came up to me, especially in Britain and in the United States, and said that, uh, well, you wrote a book about India. And the book has, you know, caught a lot of attention in India. It was even read in parliament by a leader of a party. The main difference is, you know, those countries, um, people coming from those countries that have been subjected to right-wing populism or rising fascism already, they are like nodding, understanding and like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I feel you. But then the other countries like, um, in the, in the, you know, Western European and countries in the United States, they are more like, okay, convince me now. Um, I'm not really convinced. This might not happen to us. Although in last year, it changed a lot. So <laughs> I think I wrote a mm. book that became timely after two years uh, it was published. So yeah, the complete difference. And I really want those audiences to talk to each other, actually. That's what was one of the reasons I wrote How to Lose a Country. And I want to quote some, some, some bits to you. You write right towards the end, actually, I, I wrote this book to heal myself after seeing all the things I've seen. Do you primarily mean the things that you saw in your years as a reporter, going to some pretty um, dangerous places? Yes, as a journalist, of course. Um, you know, because I've been to I don't know, several horrible places. But then actually, it is uh, daily life that we all are witness to, which damages whatever that is humane in us. I mean, like, 
watch TV now and you can see the Spanish border, uh, you know, Spanish soldiers throwing back the refugees to the sea. I mean, that's enough. You don't have to be a war zone journalist to see the ugliness of our system. So, yeah, but yeah, of course, you know, journalism is a good laboratory to see what humankind is capable of. Do you miss that that kind of um, reporting or was it something that you think kind of, you know, after a while takes a toll on you, takes such a toll on you that it, it is actually kind of better to, have, to, to, to sort of move on to other kinds of writing rather than sort of being on the ground ducking bombs? Only a writer can ask this question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are two kinds of writers, I think. One kind finds uh, his or her nourishment in, in libraries, at home, uh, in a settled-down place, whatever. And there are there's the other kind, which pretty much my kind, uh, that feeds on life, life itself, with its goodness mm. and uh, with its miracles and so on. I miss that. I missed. Uh, feeding on life, sucking life, because, you know, what you do as a journalist is witnessing the extraordinary. I missed extraordinary, but sometimes I do, I do think that I am too broken now uh, to go back to that, I was going to call it real life, but is it real life? The, mm. the extremes, where the extremes take, take place. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of healing myself. You're right. I'm not, that's end of together. I am kind of healing myself. I don't know if it is for a new uh, way of life, which is, again, uh, in the extremes. But good question. So good that I couldn't really answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I've seen sort of both in our times and kind of in the cases of, of various people that I've studied in the past, um, many activists and some journalists also, they sort of, they do end up sort of broken perhaps by, the, by their efforts and, and succumbing to despair. And, and one message of this book seems to be how to build stamina, you know, not, not quite self-help, but the, but the actually you sort of try and say that if you don't, if you don't find the way to sort of, to build the stamina and sort of keep those inner resources going, that, that however passionate you are about the work you do are about changing things that you will just be rendered useless, you know, that you will be broken by it. You know, it's not only journalism and what you've been through journalism. Actually, I think now it's getting really a psychotherapy kind of thing. But what broke me was being ousted from the country, metaphorically, of course. Well, they call me writer in exile. I'm living in Zagreb, not in Turkey anymore. I think that broke me. And this is one of the most difficult things that a person can go through, being left out, sort of. It's not only my problem because, you know, it didn't happen to me only because I'm political and so on and so forth. Many people, I think, in, in the world today feel like out of their place, they feel like they do not belong to that country anymore. Even if they're living in their homeland, they feel like an exile. They live like an exile or a refugee. They're confining themselves to a much narrower life than before because of the polarization, because of uh, the cruelty of the system we're living in and so on. So I think it is not, you know, the when I say, you know, I'm healing myself, or I, during this, I was healing myself during to, writing together, but I also thought that this is one of the problems that many people is going through, one of the mm. you know, disappointment, actually, uh, people are going through, heartbreak even. 
Well, that's it, because I, I mean, I see a lot of people, even in the UK, you know, withdrawing from politics for their own sort of mental well-being, because it's, it's just so depressing. And that is obviously a sort of, it's an understandable response to just sort of pull back. You seem to be saying that that, that is, that, that's one of the big dangers that we face is just going, do you know what, I can't, can't deal with this stuff, so I'm not going to do anything. Yeah, that's that's why I wrote the book because I felt myself felt like okay, I cannot deal with this stuff anymore. Of course, you know when you write a book called How to Lose a Country, you constantly uh, talk about how every country is in deep shit. So you constantly are presented with the worst of your kind through these politicians, through the supporter of the supporters of these politicians, and so on. And so you start thinking that this is too devastating this is too ugly i cannot be part of this i don't want to witness this in, anymore and so on but that makes us less human and that makes us less on several other levels and what we are looking for in life as individuals should be complete should be should be being whole living a whole life being our whole selves and so on this is what needs to be healed i think And you also write that happiness is a terrifying idea. Um, (laughs) What do you mean by that? Of course. I mean, like, come on. (laughs) First of all, it's ambitious, happiness. And second, when you are born to a family that has been on the wrong side of history, as in, like, you know, they are the defeated ones, the progressives, leftists, and so on, happiness seems like a big sin and it's something that you don't want that you are afraid of and when and also there's this middle eastern thing in me and every middle eastern would understand what i mean when saying this Hmm. when something good happens all of us think that okay there's something really bad is going to happen now this is something um, cultural i think as well yeah also happiness has been ideologically imposed on us uh, by several cultural mediums uh, through, uh, since 1980s. Uh, so happiness is something like a betrayal for many people, I would say. <laughs> they, they, would, yeah, they would feel betraying their own kind or the ideals or the world even when they are happy. Well, I mean, the book does make me sort of, you know, re- rethink, I suppose, what certain words that we use a lot. You once told me when I was writing um, uh, writing something about Orwell and, and asked you for your sort of thoughts and experiences, you replied sort of, I do believe in pessimism because those of us who see the evil clearly actually contribute to humankind more than the shiny, happy people. <laughs> yes. Do you think that people sort of mistake pessimism for despair and the, the opposite of hope and therefore make it something purely negative, that the pessimist just isn't going to achieve it? I mean, these, this pers- yes, they do. And uh, this perspective is so infantile that I don't understand why people do not see this. I'm like, we're adults <laughs> at the end of the day, aren't we? Or we should be adults. Like, what is pessimism, optimism? Whenever I talk about together or how to lose a country, there is one host asking me always, is this a pessimist book? Is this an optimist book? No, it is neither of them. Neither, you know, you, How to Lose a Country was pessimist or this book is an optimist book. I am talking about the reality and the ways of seeing it. And, you know, I'm talking about, you know, in How to Lose a Country, I talked about the political mechanism, global political mechanism that produces fascism and so on. Mm. And now I'm talking about the human being that can produce 
beauty on several levels in politics, in social life, in individual intimate relationships and so on and so forth. Yeah, unfortunately, life is more complicated than being, you know, than being an optimist or pessimist. Because if you write about something like, you know, there's a great chapter about friendship and to sort of be aware of the strength of friendship it's not necessarily optimistic. It's just sort of appreciating a thing that exists. And it doesn't, you don't necessarily think, oh, well, this will, this will solve everything and this will overcome dictatorship. So it's more, it's less like you suddenly have this massive change of heart mm. and more just a kind of perhaps a change of focus between the two books. Exactly. I mean, like friendship is a very, you know, ordinary word, but what if we think friendship as a way of political connection? You know, we belong to part in political parties, we belong to our country, we belong to our society, and so on and so forth. But how can we reimagine political bonds and can we reimagine it through the word friendship? Of course, I'm like, I didn't self, write a self-help book. So, okay, go out and exercise these things about friendship and then you're going to have a lovely life with an amazing politics and so on. That's why I'm like, ah, I think my books are rather a question more than an answer so i'm asking people <laughs> i'm asking people to help me to think this so, mm. so yeah it's it's a conversation opener when it happens i'm happy uh, and then when it you know slightly changes the perspective uh, of people then i am a happy person <laughs> <laughs> well you write you write about being encouraged by um the mutual aid groups that sprang up uh, around the world during the pandemic how much did, I mean, I'm not sure exactly when you, when you started writing the book, but I wonder how much it was shaped by literally things that you were observing from day to day, both good and bad, you know, that were coming out of the pandemic. Yeah, daily life is, you know, central, li- central to this book for sure. Uh, Dorian, we, we are, I think, the same generation. So um, we were born to an interesting time. On one side, there were these grand, you know, narratives, grandiose narratives. And on the other side, there was another pile of books, the deconstruction of those grandiose narratives. Mm. And since 1970s, I think, but even more so after 1990s, we started talking about, okay, we need a new narrative. We need a, you know, daily life revolution. We need to be new people and so on and so forth. But, but then nobody really, not nobody, but not many of us really start talking about that new life in terms of morality, in terms of, you know, how we are going to be and so on. This is what I try to do. So obviously, daily life is the big inspiration of the book because it is what's happening today in the, uh, you know, 20th century, 21st century, in the beginning of 21st century. Uh, Well, I'm an ordinary person, so I have an ordinary life, uh, you know, to find out the beauty and the and the conviction in that ordinary life would mean a lot to people, I think, I thought, I hoped. <laughs> but particularly given this sort of last year or so, and that, and that it just seems that there have been, there have been so many sort of, I mean, in a sense, mixed messages, things that are obviously terrible and, and, and dismaying. And then also these kind of, um, these more hopeful things about the way that sort of people interact. You know, I, the interview, uh, you know, the, the, the TV program maker, Charlie Brooker, a few months ago, and he said, "What what surprised him about the pandemic, compared to movie versions of pandemics, was that actually the governments were less effective, but the people, the citizens, were less likely to kind of strangle each other 
to the last tin of soup in the supermarket, you know, and that, yeah. that actually people yeah. behave better than he expected. Yeah, I, th- I think I wrote something like that in Together as well. I'm like, uh, we, so obviously uh, the humankind is not like the version that Hollywood presents us with. We are trying to survive in our sheepnessness. There's a long story about that in the book, like, you know, the lion and the sheep and how we're actually sheep and how we can actually protect our dignity and humaneness through that sheepness or despite that sheepness. We are better than we think. And there is a you know political reason that we think of ourselves as inhumane or, you know, ugly and a political, you know, and I am trying to produce a counter political stance saying that, no, we are good, we are okay. We're not amazing, but we are okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, at the moment we've got, so look at the UK government, which is sort of thriving politically, you know, thanks to the vaccine, despite this sort of string of, you know, very dangerous errors earlier on. But but you, there are populists, obviously, in the US, where, where Donald Trump ended up losing, Brazil and elsewhere, where these sort of men of the people clearly failed to protect the people. Do you think, looking forward, that, you know, in exposing the weaknesses of some of these kind of populist strongmen, that the pandemic will do anything to change the trends that you were describing in how to lose a country, that it will have this sort of lasting effect? Or do you think that people kind of have short memories, you know? (laughs) Uh, Well, they do. But... One, this tragedy lacks the drama, this pandemic. I mean, you know, the Spanish flu took more lives than the Second World War did, but then there are more, obviously more documentaries about Second World War than on Spanish flu. None of us were talking about Spanish flu before this pandemic. The, you know, disappearance or the failure of strongmen does not mean much to me because I know that those convictions, those inspirations that produce these strong men are still there, even if they're gone like Donald Trump did. Of course, I want to think that, okay, this pandemic taught us this and then, you know, we're going to be better people. We're going to have better democracies, better countries and so on. But then yesterday, something interesting happened. Benjamin Rhodes, Obama's consultant on politics, Mm. is publishing a book now and he, you know, a sentence from How to Lose a Country is an epigram about, you know, these things doesn't happen like a Reichstag, you know, it doesn't happen overnight, it takes time and blah, blah, blah. And then I'm looking, so many people are talking about that, you know, sentence from How to Lose a Country. So I thought, okay, it's not over. And the fear is there. And also I do think that, you know, even they are gone, like Trump did, they, they leave behind a ghost that is... Uh, you know, haunting them. It's not about them, about these strong men. It's about the, you know, collapse of a system and these, you know, rising fascist wave is the morbid symptom, as Gramsci said, uh, of a collapse of a system. Mm. We are witnessing that. And and another theme in one, in one of the chapters is what social media has done to us. And there's, a, there's an amazing sort of page, particularly about you know, this sort of business model of generating anger rather than attention and sort of what it does to our brains. And it's still relatively new. We're really talking about the sort of the past decade or so that we've all been experiencing Twitter and Facebook and other things on this scale. Do you think that we can learn to adapt to it and collectively and behave differently and 
not respond to this sort of like the the anger machine in the same way. I just wonder whether this is just like where we're getting our heads around a new technology as previous generations have had to get their heads around their sort of new technologies. Is there a kind of a better version to come, do you think, that when, we, when we've sort of, you know, adapted? Absolutely. I do think that because, you know, we are already doing it. Anger in that chapter, you know, uh, choose attention over uh, anger is bigger than social media, of course. But it, 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 social media and our, that's our communication sphere now is a lot to do with this change. Now we are like a tiny bit noticing that anger is a commodity in the social media and actually it is bought and sold and we are actually selling our most intimate emotions and one of them is anger to a private company and so on. And we are evolving. That is kind of happening in a, like a, I don't know, like an American adolescent in a, you know, Japanese tea ceremony. Sometimes, you know, people get hurt. I was one of them. I know how it feels. It's horrible. But then we are collectively trying to understand the new morality that is going to be dominant in this uh, new communication sphere. As you said, it's very, very new. We're learning it. But also we, many people are already doing it. We try to, we should try to uh, put uh, rules with our collective thinking. Rules in terms of legal rules and also moral you know, uh, rules as well, mm. how to operate in order to understand and in order to better behave in, in that uh, communication sphere. And finally, what I think is really important is, I mean, it's in the title that it's 10 choices for a better now. And it's not a la Jordan Peterson, you know, 10 rules, you know, you're not telling people what to think or do. You're sort of presenting options, you're asking them to sort of make this choice, it becomes about it becomes about them, not just you. It sort of opens up this sort of space for the reader. And I wondered which writers, whether they are still alive or, or, or from the past, that you had found made made sort of room for you as a reader and, and, and felt they felt helpful to you in a, in a way that you almost felt like sort of collaborators rather than just sort of sitting there and taking their advice. Okay, first of all, subtitles. I, mean, I hate subtitles. I had to put it. If it were up to me, I would say 10 commandments for 21st century, but my <laughs> editors thought it would be too ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I hate subtitles. But yeah, my collaborators, first and foremost, Albert Camus, I think. Hmm. When I think of myself as a thinker, because they call me that now, I think of Albert Camus, first and foremost, and Hannah Arendt, uh, Simone Weil, several other guys, but, you know, these are the most important. And as a woman, woman collaborator, I'm thinking of a female collaborator, that would be Clarice Lispector and Ingeborg Bachmann. Did you reread The Plague then by Camus over this year? No, uh, actually... After writing the book, I started reading The Rebel. After writing the book, for some reason, I'm like, I read it for two times. But after writing the book, I thought, okay, now I need some, you know, emotional crutch, <laughs> actually, to do these interviews. So now I need to read Albert Camus. <laughs> yeah, he's a, good, he's a good companion. He is, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me, H.H. Melkrin. That was fantastic, Dorian. Thank you so much. Together, 10 Choices for a Better Now is published by Fourth Estate 
And thanks to you for listening. Take care. I'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jan Losofrenievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenton Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>